0: Hello and welcome to Question Period. I'm Joyce Napier. Evan Solomon is away. Today on the program, contender or pretender?
1: I do think that Pierre has got the advantage at this time. There is a lot of job to do, a lot of people to meet, a lot of people to convince to vote for the best leadership candidate. In my case, I do prefer Jean Charette.
0: More MPs show support for leadership candidate Pierre Poilièvre after his record membership claims. Is the race his to lose? Do other candidates like Jean Charest still have a path to victory? Conservative leadership candidate Jean Charest will be here. Why won't he release more specific membership numbers than travel pains? We need to smoothen out uh, the curve when it comes to ensuring that we have the right resources at the right time. The federal government says it's working on new measures to help ease delays at major airports. How will the backlogs impact Canadian tourism and those traveling for business? And is it time to drop vaccine mandates for travel? Minister of Tourism, Randy Boissonneau
2: will join us, plus step forward. What colonial laws are standing in your way? Let us discuss how we might dismantle them together.
0: A special interlocutor begins work this week to address unmarked graves at residential schools. How will the role help with reconciliation? And why do laws need to be examined to protect and preserve burial sites? We'll speak to the newly appointed special interlocutor, Kimberly Murray. This is Question Period. Let's go get some answers. Is the writing already on the wall in the Conservative leadership race? As the party works to validate a record number of memberships, frontrunner Pierre Poilievre may already be on his way to solidifying his path to victory. And while the number could change, the party is expecting more than 600,000 eligible voters. Of those numbers, Pierre Poiliev's campaign claims it has sold nearly 312,000 memberships. And Patrick Brown says his tally is upward of 150,000. Now the race is not solely decided by memberships, but by points allocated in each of Canada's 338 ridings. So, distribution of where votes are coming from can be just as critical. And that's what candidate Jean Charest is banking on. He will only say he has recruited tens of thousands of members. But he does say he has the points he needs to win. So why does Jean Charest still think he has a path to victory? Let's find out. Joining me now is Conservative Leadership candidate Jean Charest. Welcome to question period. Very good to have you in studio. Thank you. Um, so let's start with the easy questions here. So Pierre Poiliev <laughs> signed up more than 300,000 members. Patrick yeah. Brown says 150,000. And you've said tens of thousands. Yeah. So can you give us a specific number
3: <laughs> well and you know Mr. Poitier uh, three well over 300,000 Mr. Brown 150 there was 150 or 160 plus Joyce there's other people who signed on so at the rate it's going we call it Pierre inflation in terms of recruiting members I think he's recruited members in the state of Maine in New Hampshire if, if you're to follow his logic And so our view is that the race is decided by points, not the number of members, because you can have 10,000 members in a riding, it's worth 100 points. And if you have 100 members in another riding, it's worth 100 points. It's 100 points per riding. We've based all our campaign on having a broad base of support across the country in all ridings, because that's the way the race was designed, so that whoever would win would have the broadest base of support across the country. And uh, we're very confident of where we are right now. We feel very good. By the way, you noticed Mr. Poliev has not said he's going to win on the first ballot. And you also know the history of these races. Whoever leads on the first ballot never wins the race because it, they, they tend to just even out on the first ballot and not be anyone's second ballot support. So unless, feel- they
0: win, unless they win on the first ballot. Well Obviously.
3: Which he's not saying, interestingly enough and but he keeps inflating the numbers. No one believes the numbers anymore, so you, you it's don't all believe, about so, the point so wait,
0: you don't believe the numbers that Mr. Poilievre or Mr. Brown came up well, with
3: No, no one believes them anyway. I mean, if you look at the uh, the reaction from the media caricatures and I mean, everyone is mocking that because uh, the, the, the peer inflation on the numbers just proves that it's all spin. When in the end of the day, it's all about points in the writings, and that's what we're feeling very confident about.
0: So let me ask you about uniting the caucus, because this past week, two more MPs, two more Conservative MPs switched and have decided to support Monsieur Poilievre. So it seems that he's got uh, the biggest bulk of the, of, of the caucus on yep. his side. Um, So is he the one that's uniting the party? Well,
3: it's not surprising. He is in caucus. I'm not in caucus right now. He is in caucus. And it is not surprising that members would naturally uh, revolve around the person that they know who being in caucus. But we also know, Joyce, from other leadership races, that the number of members who offer support in caucus is not a determining factor we've seen that time and time again because at the end of the day members will vote and it's a hundred points per riding no matter how many members there are in a single riding it means the total membership count is not directly connected to the number of points you get in in each riding. And that's the campaign we've run, to be as broad-based as we could across the country, having representation in every single region. And we're very confident about our positioning right now.
0: I have another question about uniting the party. Patrick Brown said this week that if Mr. Poilievre wins, he will not run as for the conservative, the federal conservative party. Would you say the same thing as Mr. Brown? If Pierre Poiliev wins, are you in here to win the leadership or to eventually, would you be prepared to run as an MP?
3: Well, that's a a very good news in the sense that it means Mr. Brown will be running for me when I become leader of the party. And I, I welcome that because he would be a great member of the team and uh, and when i do win i will work with all the other candidates so that we unite the caucus and prepare a vision and by the way we're in a minority government situation that can change very rapidly so we're going to have to move very rapidly to be prepared for the next election campaign and i'll be delighted to have uh, all the candidates on that stage as a running for me in the next campaign
0: so would you run for mr brown if he
1: won
3: I'm going to win this leadership race, and I will be delighted to work with all the other five candidates in this race. That's the only position that I can take as I look at the numbers, as I look at how this race has unfolded. The issues, Joyce. That is the only option in front of me right now.
0: Six hundred thousand uh, members. They're going to have to sift through that. They're going to have yes. to look at it, and, and there may be delays—six to eight-week delays—in. Do you think your party is going to be ready on September 10th to have this leadership convention with all the what? ballots counted, sent out, returned, and not too many you know, ballots that have to be thrown out?
3: There's two things that we've, uh, we've asked, as, and the five candidates are asking, except Mr. Putiev. One is that we need an interim list on an urgent basis. I mean, that's the whole point of the campaign. If we don't have access to the list of members so that we can campaign, reach them, and persuade them, then, then what's the point? And so this is going to pose a very serious issue for the party, because if they don't have the ability to give us a list in a reasonable period of time, they're going to have to look at extending the date of the 10th of September. I'm sorry. Otherwise, what's the point of having a race if we can't have access
0: to the list? Yeah. one last question. So do you want another debate? I know that sure. there's several of your uh, of, of these contenders that want a debate. You want another one?
3: We've had you know, two official party debates, one in Edmonton, one in Laval, Quebec. And I think a third debate would be, uh, would serve us well, would serve the membership of the party very well. Oh, there's five out of six candidates who have agreed that that should be the case the only one who has uh, seems to be refusing is Pierre Potieff you have to wonder why why, why would Mr. Potieff not say sure let's have another debate let's be transparent you know if we want more freedom to choose I guess doesn't it make sense that uh, we allow the members to hear what we have to say I think so
0: that, alter- that decision re- rests with the party they yes. will decide that yeah. How, have they told you that this is going to happen, that there's a likelihood that this will happen? We're,
3: we're waiting for the decision. Uh, the idea of doing a third debate was was raised early in the campaign, and it sort of stayed there. I'm sure the media would enjoy a, a third debate also.
0: Sure. <laughs> without, uh, probably, uh, without a sad trombone, maybe that would be that a good would one. Be,
3: that would be very good.
0: <laughs> Jean Charest, thanks so much for this.
3: Thank you very much.
0: When we come back, travel woes. What new measures is the federal government working on to ease the backlogs? Is it time for vaccine travel mandates to be dropped? Tourism Minister Randy Boissonot joins us next. Stay right here with Question Period. Travel is making its comeback, but can the industry keep up? In recent weeks, travelers have been facing airport delays and flight cancellations at some Canadian airports, like Pearson in Toronto. The federal government says it's hiring new staff and working on new measures to ease delays. There's a sense of urgency to do this, but we want to do it right, we want to understand the real bottlenecks and we want to address them uh, accurately and properly. Also in response to the pressure, the federal government is now suspending random COVID testing at airports for vaccinated travellers returning to Canada. The Conservatives are also pushing for vaccine mandates to drop, a move even some Liberal MPs support. These mandates were important. Uh, there's a high vaccination rate, we have Canadians safe, there's a lot less people that have died here per capita than many other countries. So the mandates
3: worked, the mandates are important, but now it's probably time to move on.
0: So is the government playing catch-up to travel demands and is it time to drop vaccine mandates? And joining me now is the Minister of Tourism and Associate Finance Minister, Randy Boissonneau. Minister, uh, very good to see you. Um, Nice to have you on the show. I'm wondering, I want to talk about airports, especially Pearson. Now, is this the case of the federal government caught off guard?
4: Well, I think what it is, Joyce, is a conversation of coordination and uh, a bunch of pent-up travel that we're seeing around the world. And uh, quite frankly, resetting a system after two years of the pandemic. I'm going to be very blunt. I'm not happy with the situation. I don't want Canadians waiting in lines. I don't want international travelers stuck on the tarmac. Uh, We've got an issue. We need to fix it. And we're leaning in on this hard. We've got 850 uh, CAATSA officials that have been uh, hired to get on the front lines and that's uh, more than we would have had in place in in 2019. You know, there is an issue about time of day, the time of week, when there are surge points, and it's our responsibility as government to work with the airlines, to work with the airport authority, so that citizens and travelers don't have to worry about uh,
0: any disruption. But my question is, you know, it's not like this comes as a surprise. My question is, why not get ahead of it? Because clearly now you're playing catch up. You're actually hiring another 800 airport employees. Why does it have to be done now? Like, as the travel season, you are the tourism minister. Those shots, those shots of people at Pearson Airport don't really make people want to come and visit Canada, does it?
4: Well, we didn't hire 850 people yesterday, Joyce. There's 330 million that we put into the system uh, over the last number of months to be ready for the summer season. I have to
0: interrupt you because the the, the transport minister is the one who said we just hired 400. And then he said we hired actually more than 400, 800. So you are hiring people now. You, You haven't hired these people two months ago. You are hiring them and training them now.
4: Well, we couldn't do that without the money in the system. So I hear you. And what I'm saying is the situation isn't acceptable, which is why I work with Minister Gabra, Minister Mendicino, Minister Duclos to get this work done. And we've got to have better coordination in the system. I'll give you an example, Joyce. We probably had lots of... CBSA workers on inspection we need to rebalance them to the front and we're adding surge capacity because we could see this coming and we're going to speed up the training that's another thing and quite frankly making sure that you know we've got all of the kiosks working at uh, Toronto airport is also going to speed things up because I want to make sure that this is uh, a seamless experience when people come to Canada. And people are ready to travel. I want to make sure it's a good experience
0: well, for the, the, Yes, and, and so let, let's talk about, let's go to the travel restrictions. So MPs from your party are saying that maybe these restrictions now should be kind of eased, if not keep the masks on. But is it time to reassess now that, for instance, the U.S. is dropping mandatory testing for people entering the country? So they, they are being dropped. So we,
4: we're going to attack the problem from many different uh, perspectives. And in April, we dropped the PCR test. Uh, two weeks later, we dropped the rapid test. I'll say it again, and I've said it since I was Minister of Tourism: safety first, then travel. We're going to. We've got the safest jurisdiction in the world to travel to: high vaccination rates, low rates of, of COVID. And look, as soon as we can, you know, make a move that keeps Canadians and travelers safe, that speeds up any of those issues, absolutely, we will look at it and we will move. And um, Seamless travel is the goal. And I'm focused on this with Minister of Health, Jean Duclos, and my other colleagues in cabinet.
0: Okay, let's talk about airlines because I think that the airlines maybe have a little bit of responsibility in this. The federal government is the largest shareholder in Air Canada. Taxpayers bailed Air Canada out to the tune of almost $5 billion uh, during the pandemic. Numbers that CTV News has reviewed this week show airports like Ottawa, Winnipeg, And Edmonton, so smaller airports than Pearson, are substantially uh, underserved compared to Pearson. So why isn't your government putting pressure on Air Canada to schedule flights to secondary airports instead of hubbing it all to um, to Pearson, and you know packing their schedules and still making quite a bit of money, and not serving those taxpayers that bailed them out?
5: Well,
4: Joyce, you're speaking my language, and I've said this before, and I'll say it again. I want to see direct flights from uh, big cities to smaller cities, between smaller cities. And it's like the airlines have to make money. We know that. And I'm going to put a different word on what you said. We stepped in to make sure that airlines would be there uh after the pandemic and that was a decision we made you know m- investing half a trillion dollars in in canadians and businesses in, in provinces and in communities and it's so that we can have this this uh this renewal of, of travel but i want to see i think i think there's a direct flight that starts june 24th for example between edmonton and ottawa and i want to see those kind of things happen and i want all airlines to think about you know how we can have multiple gateway cities Toronto's a wait, gateway city. vancouver so is Montreal, and these are conversations that the Minister of Transport and, I mean, we can't call up Air Canada and say, schedule more flights. Well, I know. Oh, we okay, so them. why would
0: you not have a <laughs> say after doling out almost $5 billion, being the largest shareholder of Air Canada, yeah. to tell them to change their practices?
4: Absolutely. We can have those conversations, and as as corporate uh, boards, they will respond, and as executives, they will respond. I had these conversations with certain officials. Uh, certainly. Uh, at Air Canada earlier this year. And look, the other thing that we want to make sure there is in the system is is competition. That's why ultra low cost carriers like Flair matter. That's why carriers like um, Porter are really important. The more competition we have in the system, the more agile we'll see uh, the big two carriers, WestJet and Air Canada be. And it's a really important point that you raise because... We have to have more access to more points in Canada. It can't just be Toronto, Vancouver, uh, Montreal, Calgary. Uh, does have some access, but quite frankly, the more people are traveling, the more the airlines will be able to respond. And if they don't, some of the uh, smart well, they're competitors. they're not responding now, Minister.
0: With all due respect, they're not responding now. So, when do you figure this? should be you know a little bit more fluid that traffic in airports should be a little bit more fluid what what deadline are you giving yourselves because July 1st is upon us
4: this the surge in the system Joyce is something we're working through right now and I want to see this done in a, in a in a matter of weeks not uh, half a year or a year like this I want to make sure that this summer season is a summer season that people are going to remember for the experience that they have once they've left the airport
0: well and I uh, Canadians will be watching, Minister uh, Minister of Tourism and Associate Finance Minister Randy Boissonneau. Thanks for joining us.
4: Thanks Joyce, all the best to you.
0: Coming up, Critical Step. What will be the role of Canada's new special interlocutor for unmarked graves at residential schools? Why do existing laws need to be examined to protect and preserve burial sites? Special interlocutor Kimberly Murray joins us next. Stay right here with question period. Finding answers. That will be the aim for Canada's new independent special interlocutor for unmarked graves at residential schools. Kimberly Murray starts that important job this week. She will be tasked with working with Indigenous communities to make recommendations to strengthen federal laws to protect and preserve unmarked burial sites now Murray is no stranger to this work she is the former executive director of the truth and reconciliation commission her appointment comes just over a year after 200 unmarked graves were found at the site of the former Kamloops Indian Residential School and since then more unmarked graves have been identified across the country but the tragic reality of those burial sites has been known for years through survivors' testimony made to the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. So how will Kimberly Murray support indigenous communities undergoing this work and how does the federal government fit in? Let's find out. Joining me now is the independent special interlocutor Kimberly Murray. Uh, Ms. Murray thanks for taking the time to talk to us. Good to have you on the show. So your mandate actually starts now and continues for two years Can you explain to Canadians what is your role
2: and what's your main goal? Um, Yes, um, uh, I would say that uh, there's a number of components to my role, and the first uh, component is to... Uh, speak to survivors and communities as they embark on this important work that they're doing on the grounds of former indian residential schools and find out what the barriers are uh, to the work that they're doing and see how i can help uh, with uh, removing those barriers and so um, the department of justice in canada uh, would like uh, me to also review the legislation and the framework that is Uh, currently in place or not in place, uh, and make recommendations to them how they can improve uh, the processes that are in existence right now. Um, And then, um, you know, so it's this review of the provincial and federal legislation uh, and uh, connecting people uh, with the right resources uh, in the federal government.
0: So you speak of barriers. What, What do you mean? What kind of barriers are there?
2: Um, Well, there's all kinds of barriers. So it can start from uh, the land and where the residential school was located. Uh, You know, there's provincial legislation, there's uh, private property, and how does one get onto the private property? Uh, to be able to conduct the ground penetrating radar. Um, there's barriers with relation to access to records. We have legislation in every province and in the federal government uh, uh, protecting privacy and uh, many collections of documents that can help uh, communities identify children that went to the residential schools uh, are not accessible right now. Um, so you know, is it time to make some changes to some of these laws? Uh, How can we incorporate indigenous law uh, principles into the colonial laws to open up some of these problems uh, and solve them for communities?
0: So what I'm hearing from you is this is going to be a very complex, um, you know, sort of multi-layered mandate that you have. So you talk about records that provinces have as well. So it's not only the Vatican who ran a lot of these schools, it's not only the federal government, but the provinces also hold these records that are important to getting to the bottom of this. What kind of authority will you have to demand or require these records from from all sides, from the Vatican, from the federal government, and from the provinces who actually have some of these records?
2: Um, Yeah, you're absolutely right. There's records in the provincial archives. There's records in municipal archives. There's records in more than the Vatican. Uh, You know, let's not forget there's the Anglican Church and the Presbyterian Church uh, as well, and the United Church that were involved in operating um, the residential schools. Um, My mandate has no powers to compel production of records. Uh, My mandate does make reference to... uh, the ability to ask for records Um, and I will ask for those records to be provided uh, for communities and to communities. Um, There is a provision in the mandate that says that I can utilize any uh, legal avenues that are available and makes reference to freedom of information requests. I can tell you I will not be making freedom of information requests uh, to access records Um, but it's a broader uh, reference uh, to utilizing uh, any law. Um, and I, I will not shy away from having to go to court to help community get access to records if that's the way that communities want to go.
0: You know, I, w- I want to go these, to these burial sites. You, you, you seem to think that they need to be legally protected. Legally protected from whom, from, for, for what reason?
2: Um, well first I would say it's not just me that thinks they need to be legally protected. Uh, it was a call to action from the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. It is a call uh, and a want from survivors and leadership. Um, and so uh, nobody wants uh, developers to come in and build houses on top of burial grounds. Um, and so we need to protect those grounds. There are legislation in place, there is leg- legislation in place place that does protect burial grounds. But what we're learning is that people aren't abiding by the law. Uh, it's a little secret uh, in some construction world that if you find bones, you just bury them real fast because it's going to trigger a number of different legislations, the Coroner's Act, the, the Burial Cremations Act, uh, and you know various um, investigations that happen that will slow down the development. Um, so I think it's really about talking to Canadians and developers uh, about no, nobody wants their home built on top of the burial ground of uh, little Indigenous children. Um, and so we, we, we need to protect these grounds and, and preserve them. So, you know, it's been one year
0: uh, since many Canadians first learned of the unmarked graves at Kamloops, something Indigenous communities already knew for a long time. We heard survivor testimony years ago in the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. You know that uh, better than most. Do you believe that this country has made progress towards reconciliation? You know, in this last year.
2: Um, I, I actually, uh, you know, think that survivors and communities have brought uh, this conversation back to into light for Canadians and. Um, I do think that uh, the supports that are being put in place although you know they're not completely enough uh, they are uh, good steps moving forward in, in helping communities uh, are there is there more everyone could be doing absolutely um, and uh, I think that as the conversation continues and more and more burials uh, are uh, discovered and found um, that You know more people will come forward to help and I would urge every Canadian uh, that had any family member that worked in these residential schools to really think about whether what information you may have because we have learned that there are children of people that worked in the school that have information because they too when they were children were on the site and have information that has proven to be quite helpful to uh, the survivors at the Mohawk Institute Kimberly Murray, you
0: have a huge task ahead of you. Uh, thanks, thanks for joining us. Thank you. Still to come, the politics of inflation. Can the Liberal government do more to ease the burden of inflation? And how are the Conservatives and NDP taking the government to task? Parliamentary Budget Officer Yves Giroux will join the Scrum next. Stay right here with Question Period. soaring inflation and the rising cost of living. Those issues are not only putting pressure on Canadians' wallets, but also on the federal government. These
5: liberals are so massively out of touch, they don't understand gas prices, they don't understand
0: high food prices, they don't understand long lineups, they understand nothing about what Canadians
6: are dealing with, and they don't care. Mr. Speaker,
0: let me tell you
6: what is out of touch. What is out of touch is for someone who lives in government accommodation to suggest that a check for $2,300 for a family of three working at the minimum wage is
0: piddly. According to a new report from the Parliamentary Budget Officer, the surge is largely caused by the COVID-19 pandemic and the Russian invasion of Ukraine, limiting supply for certain goods while demand remains high. So what can the government really do? And how are the numbers playing out politically? The Scrum is here to answer that. Tonda McCharles is a senior reporter with the Toronto Star's Parliamentary Bureau. Marika Walsh is a political reporter for The Globe and Mail. And our special guest this round is the Parliamentary Budget Officer, Yves Giroux. Hello. Welcome to the three of you. Um, Always good to have you on the show, Monsieur Giroux. I'm going to start with you. You released two key reports this week, the first being the Consumer Price Index Inflation Monitor. What are the red flags? What are your greatest concerns when it comes to inflation?
1: Well, inflation is high and everybody knows that. What we wanted to look at by releasing this report was whether inflation was widespread or whether it was uh, concentrated among a couple of areas and also whether inflation expectations were starting to rise, which would indicate that inflation is getting out of control and would be difficult to bring back under control. So on the whether inflation is broad-based or limited to a couple of key sectors, we find that it's not yet broad-based. It's concentrated on items that Canadians buy very often, unfortunately, giving the impression that There is a lot of inflation around. When we looked at inflation expectations, we find that consumers and the financial markets, but mostly consumers, have revised upwards their inflation expectations for the next year and the next two years. But looking forward into the next five years, consumers seem to believe that inflation will be going back to the 2% target of the Bank of Canada. And financial markets also seem to believe that 2% inflation will be what we'll be seeing in the next couple of years in the medium term. So these are are the key findings of our report on inflation. So
0: Tana, in this context, the opposition parties, the NDP and the Conservatives are asking the Liberals to act. So you've got the Conservatives saying, let's cut some taxes. You've got the NDP saying, give tax uh, big companies, Mm -hmm. uh, oil companies, big box stores, let's redistribute the wealth. Are the Liberals taking the right approach politically?
5: Look, I think as Mr. Giroux just outlined, all of this is a huge public policy challenge for the government, right? And uh, you know, it's not just in Canada that there's high inflation. In the U.S. and in the U.S. this past week, you know, the Prime Minister has been touting this government's response to helping parents with childcare costs. Again, a long-term solution. Um, the Ch- Ch- Canada Child uh, benefit rising to help lower-income families who need it. Um, but there are policy measures that, for example, the NDP are proposing, not the wealth tax, but you know, providing more money to lower-income families to deal with inflation that the government hasn't taken up, uh, the GST credit they want to see raised. Um, I think that what we'll see and what we're already hearing is that next week, I think the government, you're going to see pivot because Freeland is apparently coming out with a major spe- speech on this stuff. And uh, I think that they're starting to recognize it's not just good enough to propose medium to long-term solutions and that's the challenge for the government how do you manage public confidence um, expectations all of that it's a mind
0: game now isn't it it's difficult it's a difficult one marike what do you make uh, of, of that rhetoric in the house has the opposition scored political points on this
6: Certainly, I think the opposition has touched a nerve and is has their finger on the pulse of Canadians. Right? So I'm not sure that you would describe it as scoring political points per se. There is obviously also a political imperative to it. What's interesting to me is that so far the government has focused its response to this amped up pressure from both opposition parties from both sides of the spectrum to point to what they have already done rather than to doing more. And mm-hmm. so, as Tonda is saying, maybe that changes now. But what we saw from Krisha Freeland in the past week is again pointing to other things like changes to the old age security benefit and all of these other things. The question is given how fast inflation is moving, given the pressure on the pocketbooks, as Mr. Giroux said, for energy costs for families, for food costs. Do they need to do more? And can they avoid doing more before this summer recess and before this long break in parliament? And I, I think that's something that it's not quite clear yet. Well, then you write in your report that high inflation is not expected to
0: be permanent. There's a medium to long-term expectation. It'll return maybe to 2% target. But what about the short-term fixes that we're talking about So, to address affordability? So Can a government conceivably do something to ease the burden now, in the short term?
1: Well, there's not that much that the government can do to bring inflation down quickly in the short term. The way the government or any government can quickly act uh, would be to reduce taxes. But in the grand scheme of things, when you have gas prices, that have spiked that much, and when you have housing prices that have increased significantly over the last 12 to 24 months, reducing taxes would, of course, reduce inflation, but it, I don't think it would be sufficient in and of itself to bring it back down to 2%. But there is some things that the government can do and that central banks, together with governments, can do in the medium and longer term, and that's what the bank has been committed to doing. They've committed to bringing back the uh, the inflation or CPI um, in close to their or at their target range of 1 to 3%. But in the immediate, the very short term, there is unfortunately not that much that governments can do to bring inflation down. They can help alleviate the impacts of inflation on households that are suffering the most. But inflation itself is difficult to control in the very short term.
0: And then we'll see, Tonda, what uh, Christian Freeland says in, mm-hmm. in, in the speech and, and before the House rises. But I, I, w- I want to change topic and I want to go to, to uh, you know, the federal government is facing a lot of pressure uh, given the chaos uh, in Canadian airports, especially mm-hmm. uh, at Pearson. What should the government do? Because it is now becoming a huge political mm-hmm, problem mm-hmm. for the federal government. No, it's government. a
5: big problem, and the pressure is no longer just coming from the conservative opposition uh, in the House of Commons to drop these mandates in the name of, you know, the uh, unvaccinated and freedom to travel. But the pressure is also seemingly coming from internally within the Liberal caucus. We heard one of their members um, in in a news article on Friday talk about Marcus Pawlowski, who's a, a doctor, uh, MP from Thunder bay Really making the case that it no longer makes sense. That basically keep the mask mandates on planes, uh, but it's time to let some of these vaccination um, requirements, the testing requirements internationally, and the and the vaccine mandates to allow domestic air travel to happen. The question is that's not going to solve all the problems at uh, airports. Mm-hmm. The problems at airports are a function of staffing for the airlines, baggage handlers, security, the staffing from CATSA, the Canadian Air, air Transport Security Authority, and so look,
0: this is a massive, complex problem. Marika, what's your take on that? I mean, are, are, are they gonna, is the, is the government gonna have to lift mandates, do something? Although, as Tonda says, rightly so, that's not the only problem at airports.
6: Mm-hmm. Well, we spoke with several Liberal MPs in the latter half of last week who who said, as Tonda said, that there is massive pressure, not just from the opposition, but also from within the Liberal caucus to change this. The Liberal MPs view this as something that has come past its due date, that it's no longer driving vaccinations. We see actually that Canada has quite a low uptake, for example, of third dose vaccinations. And so if it's no longer serving a policy purpose of vaccinating people, getting more people to get vaccinated, then what is the point of it other than keeping families separated in the summer months and so I think that if the government does decide to keep this they're going to have to come forward with a rationale not just for the public but for their own Liberal MPs to stay on side on this. And
0: this just before the travel season <laughs> really starts and the problems have started even before the travel season begins. Uh, Yves Giroux thanks for joining us Tonda and Marika will be back. When we come back setting the record straight Can the Conservative Party verify its record-breaking memberships in time for the September leadership vote? And what do the membership sales tell us about the momentum of the race? Is the leadership Pierre Poilier to lose? The Scrum returns with Conservative Party of Canada President Rob Batherson. Stay right here with Questions. A massive membership list. The Conservative Party of Canada says leadership candidates can expect more than 600,000 members to place a vote for a new leader in September. And if the number sounds like a record one, well, it is. By comparison, the party counted more than 269,000 eligible voters in the last leadership race in 2020. The memberships still need to be verified by the party and leadership candidates will have the chance to review and challenge those memberships. This year's record number has some questioning whether the party can get ballots to voters in time. So what do the campaign membership claims tell us about the race? And what do these record-breaking party sign-ups mean for the future of the party? And the Scrum is here to answer that. Tana McCharles is a senior reporter with the Toronto Star's Parliamentary Bureau. Marika Walsh is a political reporter for The Globe and Mail. And our special guest this round is Conservative Party President Rob Batherson. Um, hi to the three of you. Good to see you, Rob. Um, the, your party expecting well over 600,000 members will be eligible to vote in this race. What does it tell you about the significance of the race and the fact that half of those members uh, seem uh, to have been, uh, you know, brought into your party by one candidate?
7: Well, thanks uh, Joyce. And first off, uh, of course, we're not commenting on specific numbers that individual campaigns uh, are stating they've signed up, but certainly what we can talk about is well over 600,000 Canadians are signed up members in the Conservative Party of Canada. They're stepping up for change. They want to see a new government. They want to see a prime minister, new prime minister, and this is uh, the way for them to uh, step up and get involved. It's great news for the party and great news for democracy.
0: So, Tanda, 311,000 members, uh, Pierre Poilievre uh, says that he has, with proof, that he has actually signed up. Um, You know, that is more... Than the total number of, of of people who had signed up, or of conservatives who signed up last time. So, what does it tell you? Is this is this seem to be a done deal, or can we expect surprises? It's, look, it's a huge number. It's a huge number for
5: Poilievre to have signed up. It's a huge number for the Conservative Party. It speaks to a campaign that has sought to motivate voters through anger against uh, the current government and the Prime Minister. But uh, I think that, you know, apart from just being um, a little bit, I think, uh, intimidating to the other candidates, it... It also shows that Poiliev is very much in the lead and has potentially got first ballot support to win the thing. The only path I think that the other candidates now see to defeat that is either to suppress Poiliev's vote by continuing to raise questions about his uh, leadership capabilities and his judgment in the way he attacks Canadian institutions or um, by, I think, you know, uh, hoping to consolidate any other support on a second ballot. But honestly, unless a lot of those memberships turn out To be either duplicates or or, or somehow cancelled by the party. Uh, He he looks headed to a first ballot victory.
0: So Marika, we've got, you know, uh, Patrick Brown saying this week that if Poilievre wins he is not going to run for the party. Um, You know, we had Jean Charest earlier in the show insists he still has a path to victory. Two more MPs switch their allegiance to Poilievre. Is this a done deal?
6: Well, it certainly uh, really shows the scale of the challenge for Jean Charest and for Patrick Brown Joyce if they do hope to still win. I think it's important to note that the only campaign to really show its receipts in this membership race to sign up people is Pierre Polyev's campaign. Jean Charest has not released any of those details to explain how he gets a path to victory. And it's really tough to see how he does now that we see Pierre Polyev's numbers. Again, there's lots of caveats around that as Tonda has laid out. But the task ahead for them is monumental. And I don't know that the people who are signing up under the banner of Pierre Polyev are natural switchers to somebody like Jean Charest. That's really where we need to see the case that Jean Charest hopes to make in the next two months before these votes come in. And it really leads to questions about the viability of his campaign, Patrick Brown's campaign, do they both end up staying on come decision time in July?
0: Well, so Rob, let's talk about all these, these members, uh, the, the new membership. So, you know, former you know, Conservative Cabinet Minister Lisa Rait said this week that the party is more than a month and a half behind verifying all those new members uh, because, you know, there aren't enough people to do uh, that work. She, she says it's going to be a little bit of a mess. Do you have the capacity to process, verify all those members, send out the ballots and count their votes on time?
7: Absolutely because one of the things because we've had uh, a number of leadership elections over the last uh, uh, five years is that uh, we have more a greater percentage of members who are joining online uh, we're, we're we're farther away from COVID than we were in the 2020 leadership election so we've been able to bring more staff on get staff uh, working uh, longer hours we're, we're more than prepared in terms of doing our internal verification doing the processing making sure there's a preliminary list for the leadership campaigns to uh, to to verify on their own end and challenge and then have that final list on which we will base the uh, the ballot packages going out and having a final accurate number of uh, eligible voters to uh, share uh, with the party and with all canadians
0: so i want to ask you about debates because you've had two debates but they were they were seem to to have been quite a long time ago, all the candidates except Pierre Poilievre has said they'd welcome one. Is that in the cards? And does your party think that another debate would be necessary?
7: So in the middle of April, uh, when our debate subcommittee of the Leadership Election Organizing Committee notified the campaigns that we would be holding two official, mandatory debates in May, at that time we indicated that uh, we reserved the right to schedule a third debate uh, during the summer. Uh, We're listening to uh, the six leadership campaigns, but even more importantly, we're listening to our party members as to whether they see value in having a third debate, keeping in mind a lot of uh, individual electoral district associations across Canada are organizing their own events. So we don't want to uh, step on the toes of our grassroots, but I expect we'll be making a decision on whether to uh, hold a third debate uh, in the, uh, the days and weeks to come.
0: Tana, you know, the, the membership was a big milestone in this race. Mm-hmm. June 3rd, that was the deadline to sign them up. What are you looking for? This is going to be a long summer mm-hmm. for, in this race. What are you looking for?
5: I would like to see whether uh, Mr. Poiliev, who seems to be in the lead now, uh, is willing to further test himself and uh, basically prime himself for a campaign against the Liberal Party by submitting himself to not just debates, further debates, which would actually benefit the party membership, but further scrutiny from media. The Conservative Party is not uh, inclined, even this summer at the session ender, they're not inclined to engage with mainstream media, right? They, they are inclined to ga- engage uh, in, in basically vis-a-vis their membership in the base. I would like to see Mr. Poiliev test himself, be scrutinized, by uh, in media interviews through the next couple of months. Because basically, if he does want to run for prime minister, as he claims he does, all of that, testing his mettle, serves him and his party, and ultimately the country better.
0: And this will be a race we will be following all summer. Rob Batherson, Tana McCharles, and Mary Walsh, thanks for joining us. And that's question period for this week. Thank you for spending your Sunday morning with us. Evan Solomon will be back right here in seven short days.